morning slash afternoon slash evening. Welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China Africa podcast. I'm your host Yi Ting Wang, and yes, I will be carrying the torch from our usual host Winslow today, as he is physically challenged to be the main host. Don't ask me why. We're also joined by our co-host Lina Benabdala, a PhD student in international relations at the University of Florida. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nina Oduru, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On the quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that we know of. Amongst the wave of Chinese companies going global as unleashed by Chinese government policies around the 2000, a central concern by the international community has been on the role these corporate actors have played in helping African countries grow sustainably. In order to further look into the relation between companies' uh, practice on the ground and effects of government policies in general, and in Africa more specifically, we have invited to the pod Ms. Xiao Xuewen, who is a researcher in International Institute for Environment and Development, as Natural Resource Group. IIED has recently published a discussion paper titled "Chinese Business in Africa." Perspectives on corporate social responsibility and the role of Chinese government policies. Xiao Xue's research focuses on natural resources governance, the informal economy, and the evolving role of Chinese and other emerging market players in Africa. As part of her work, she engages closely with Chinese and African policymakers in the natural resources sector, as well as Chinese, African, and international civil society organizations. Xiao Xue, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yes. So,、um, as a as a core、uh, researcher and editor of this report,、uh, could you maybe、um, start with、um, telling、uh, the listeners what you've done、uh, with the research and、um, what did you find? Yes.、Um, could I just very briefly maybe talk about? That why we start we did this research, and and that will give the readers better perspective.、Um, so IIED is we are beyond over forty plus years old now,、uh, firmly engaged in sustainable development issues, research and policy engagement、um, in Africa and other parts of the world. So we've had these strong links with local governments, local civil society, local researchers, universities in. These African countries in the natural resources sector, and they started asking questions to us through our past projects.、Um, these new companies, new investors, and new actors from China and also other emerging countries. It's not only China.、Uh, how can we understand more about them? How can we? Better engage with them, and what are their business models? What drives their practices? That's sort of the questions that were raised from African researchers. And to answer those questions, we've、um, we've tried to conduct more、uh, research with Chinese、uh, researchers together. So. 
there are a series of other work that we've done before, and you can look at our website, but on this specific piece of research, um, that's how it came about. And what did we find? So the, we went into this research thinking, okay, there are lots of um, NGOs and international development practitioners who are talking about how the Chinese government should be doing something about uh, Chinese companies' practices uh, in going global and making sure that they're sustainable and contribute to local development. And we kind of took a step back and asked ourselves, is that assumption true? Is it really the Chinese government's role to do that? How does, how does it play out on the ground? Um, so we went to the ground, we, um, together with five other Chinese researchers, um, we went to three African countries and what we found was a very complex uh, factors that shape and drive Chinese businesses uh, practices on the ground in the social environmental uh, sectors, or not sectors, in their social environmental conducts. And that actually the Chinese policies were highlighted as probably least relevant or limited re relevance. And they mm -hmm. were actually, um, they were not very aware of it. And maybe there are a few caveats, obviously, that there was a big difference between state-owned enterprises and private businesses. I'm happy to talk more about the caveats, but those that's the big picture. All right. So I think one of the uh, key conclusions you draw um, in the paper is that, um, you know, the the guidelines, the uh, voluntary or or um, otherwise um, uh, from policy uh, st stipulations from the Chinese government um, have less effect on regulating the practices of the Chinese companies, at least perceived by themselves, are less strong as previously hoped, um, you know, by a lot of um, commentators. So is, is this surprising to you? Um, and, you know, what, what, what should, what, what really would be the, the, the kind of ex right expectations of any government's regulations on its company's overseas activities? Um, I, I think if, I think people who are not engaged engaged in the China going global saying maybe it's not surprising. It's like saying, well, British company uh, conducting operations in Kenya, uh, they will find Kenyan laws and Kenyan governance factors much more important than the British policies. It's like that. But um, because there is so much assumptions, I think, in the research and development community that somehow the governance of these Chinese companies, uh, whether in China or even when they go abroad, mirror the top-down approach in China. And that some, somehow the power of the Chinese state uh, should be extending to govern the, their practices. And we, we did question that already. And then basically we were proved uh, that, no, it doesn't. And our hypothesis was proved right. Uh, but we, we wanted to really understand if that was the case. And I guess when we have data from, from 58 companies, it shows something. Uh, I would 
say though that um, there are some caveats uh, here because of the research design and those are explicit in our paper so please read them there are some limitations such as we ask the people on the ground because that's what we were concerned with do these people at the operational level uh, care about which policies, Chinese or Kenyan or African or other governance factors. Um, we didn't go to the headquarter. And there are other research doing that for the headquarters side. But I think right now in this research community, what's missing now is to really understand how it's connected between the headquarter and the field offices, country offices, through maybe internal corporate policy. That's something that really came out in a few, especially SOE interviews, where they mentioned, well, we don't know about these Chinese regulations, but we could imagine that these are already weaved into our internal corporate policy, which we do know about, but that process of how that's incorporated into internal corporate policy and who is there to make sure that they are done um, in, in back home in China, that, that's not clear. And I guess that's the research, next research agenda. Um, sorry, eating. what was your question? I think there was a second part to your question. Um, no, I think you've touched on it. Uh, you know, it's um, more was your British example. Um, that's that's it, it. Should be straightforward, but I think sometimes you know, we you know we're so focused on um, everything Chinese, and then we don't sort of uh, try to ask the more general questions. Well, of you know how um, what what the other governments have done in the past. Um, you know, the American governments and British governments have done in terms of. Um, solving or addressing some of the campaigns and, and, and you know, a lot of international companies have took on to fight some um, really um, awful practices in the earlier years as as the world globalized. Um, so, uh, but I think you've touched on it. Um, and, I, and I would just like to uh, maybe ask what, um, what are the effects of local um, policies or regulations um, and how are they perceived by the uh, companies that you've interviewed? Yeah, um, they really came out the mo as the most important uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, but maybe the interesting part for us is as much uh, what's written mattered as much as what's not written. So what's written on the law and legislation, all of that, the Chinese companies, I mean, it's hard to generalize because they're so diverse, even among our 58 interviewees. But still, overall, I think we had a sense of they understood those legislation and they cared about them. And they actually had a sense that some of the environmental, especially, and labor regulations were stricter than the that of China, and they they kept remarking on how that was that seemed surprising to them when they first arrived, and that they have to adopt their practices accordingly um, to go through the uh, loops of environmental um, application process and other 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 regulations that they have to do, but. What's not written on the law, and this mattered especially on, for private businesses, the governance issues. Um, by governance, I mean, I guess, um, issues such as weak rule of law, so maybe the strong influence of political actors in the local 
local political system, whether it's um, you know the the big man kind of African politics style, or tribal politics or whatever. Well, tribal politics didn't come out actually, but um, or you know corruption, the pervasive corruption. All these countries are very high on the transparency international index. Um, and um, can, and then can you explain the index? Oh yes. Um, so the the Transparency International Index talks about the perception of corruption um, across the world. And um, somewhere in the paper, we mentioned the three countries we went to: Kenya, Uganda, and Mozambique, all ranked about one hundred between somewhere between one hundred ten and one hundred fifty, if I remember, as their level of transparency. So actually, very very perceived by the the interviewees, not ours, but their research perceived by people as very corrupt, basically, and that influences Chinese companies as well as all the other companies, and that's something I would really like to highlight and make it clear that you know whatever responses we are getting from these Chinese companies about corruption, about weak rule of law, it probably possibly applies to. All the other types of companies, so it's not Chinese specific issue. But what was surprising to us was among within the Chinese business community, especially the private businesses, they really said, "Well, this really shapes the way we conduct our practices and uh, the difficulty to deal with corruption um, from both SOEs and business uh, private businesses it was probably ranked as the top challenge." And you know this kind of goes against the cozy relationship that Chinese businesses tend to have with the local government. All those uh, media media images that appear on media, um, it, it's not that simple. It, the Chinese businesses themselves find it difficult to maneuver that space. Absolutely. If if I might ask, yeah. I mm -hmm. oh if if I might ask. Um, so you talked about how uh, these companies are really interested in, in, in the local laws. When they start their operations, do they bring yeah. in a lawyer generally to, to pour over and look at the law? Like how, how, are, they, how are they made aware of the, of the local laws? Um, and and what's the, what are the institutions they have in place to, yeah. uh, to respond to them? Um, I think that hugely depends on the type of businesses and the size of businesses. We did find that the internal management system in place um, seemed to be much more rigorous for SOEs and also larger uh, private businesses. Um, and then we also interviewed more of the, you know, one man or two man business, uh, more of the migrant story who comes and stay around, and sh establish a shop, and then they end up in trading, and they end up in uh, starting another business. So, so for the last group, I cannot talk too much about it because yes, they said the host country laws and legislation are important, but it seems to be more of an ad hoc learning process. But we didn't go too much deeper into that for the. The first group, um, the more established ones with good internal management system, they do have, for example, um, several highlighted that they have a public relations um, office. They have they hire their own lawyers, and uh, they have their own local senior manager to deal with um, labor law, labor legislation, and labor disputes. Um, 
yeah, I think there would some established system, but we didn't ask to further than that. I don't know if you have any specific aspect you're interested in on that point. No, I, I, I just wanted to illustrate for our listeners that uh, a lot of Chinese companies, especially the big ones, do care deeply about mm. uh, local law and local mm. governance, and that. Um, uh, and the, some of the perceptions about you know, how cozy Chinese companies are with local governments or their abilities to um, skate the law or, or to ignore the law are, are generally untrue. These, yeah. these companies do work yeah. hard to, to respect local Definitely. laws and institutions. Definitely. Um, there is one quote in our report where a SOE manager said, you know, we are really careful because all eyes are on us. <laughs> and and it doesn't mean that they do not do anything wrong. And uh, to make it clear, our paper, our research did not focus on their implementation or their impacts. It was their self-reported understanding of these drivers. But the way that they were describing the internal management system and how they paid attention to local legislation, all of that gave a very strong clear signal that they do strongly care and they are very careful and and interestingly in some of the uh, examples in the paper sometimes chinese businesses are dragged to court not because it's actually their responsibility but because local ngos or local i I don't know what thinks oh this is a chinese project therefore it must be we can just sue them for for some problems that they had but in fact if you read into the contractual agreement and this happens a lot in the construction sector these chinese companies are just contractors and all of the environmental or resettlement social uh, safeguards mostly fall under the responsibility of the government, local government. and the, But the Chinese companies kept, uh, he, he said, well, we keep getting sued and we just have to send our lawyer just to attend the first court hearing, just to say that this is not our responsibility, but we have to appear. So, yeah. I mean, that's just one example. I'm not saying yeah, that applies to everybody. Yeah, but sure. And Nina, um, I want to jump yeah, in ahead. here and ask about the, the 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 host country side of this equation. So we're talking about Chinese companies. We're talking about the drivers for them, perhaps to um, uh, um, comply more by CSR by by CSR um, practices. But on the say on the on the host country side of this equation, what what can a country do? What can a local government, for instance, do um, to improve? You know uh, these practices and 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 regulate these practices, and so we're talking about sometimes these gover- local governance with very very scarce resources, maybe um, not so much uh, experience with these things. Uh, w- what is it that they would be looking for to see if a company is a, is is compliant or not? I mean, especially if we are if we're asking the question at the level of whether these companies see or perceive themselves as compliant is different from whether they're actually implementing that compliance on the ground. So could you speak um, to the question? Yeah. Uh-huh. I think it's yeah, also yeah, a question yeah, of what the international stakeholders can help, right? Where, where are the areas that we could, as a community, um, put into resources? Yeah. Okay, I'll tackle those two questions quite briefly. I think, first of all, that's a question for 
Africa's economic development in general and Africa's mm -hmm. private sector development. And there's, uh, I'm sure, entire literature and laws of people working on that. And I just like to highlight that targeting Chinese specifically is not necessarily uh, efficient or resource, resource efficient or effective because this is a uh, a cult, uh, not not culture. Sorry, uh, take that away. Um, but uh, something that's universal in the private sector, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so so let's not debate that big picture. But what could be specific to Chinese companies and what could be useful? I don't know from the international community, stakeholders, or local government. I think the specific characteristic here I see on the field a lot is. Uh, maybe the language barrier and the cultural bar barrier. Um, a lot of the Western companies, you know, have had years of being uh, operating overseas, and they and, and they also culturally or maybe linguistically, they can speak the local language either French or um, English or Portuguese. Uh, and many of the Chinese companies I meet, unless it's the big managers of these SOEs. Usually, they are not they are not very fluent in the local language or the official language, at least. And also, there is a slightly cultural issue in that I think Chinese businesses take the uh, way they do business in China over to wherever they are going and. Oftentimes, for SMEs in China, environmental regulations are just there for paper. On the paper, um, they might uh, they they are not used to engaging with NGOs in China. They are not used to engaging with labor rights. Uh, they deal with things directly with the government. So I do see some of that um, mm -hmm. remnant remnants in in the way the Chinese interviewees describe their practice and I this is more anecdotal that was not the focus of our research so I you know I cannot say that's the case for all these interviewees but that was the sense personal impression I got so if we are talking about that as special characteristic potentially then something that the local government or international community could help would be obviously bridging the language gap and this we see language and cultural gap and probably by employing people who are familiar with this Chinese culture or Chinese themselves and we see that not only in this it's an advice that's common also for international research or development projects. Um, the reason why our institute um, maybe hired me is because I'm able to connect much more with these Chinese interviewees on their, mm -hmm. from their perspective and understand where they're coming from. And that's the, that's the type of advice we try to give to local civil society when Africans, NGOs or African policymakers ask us, okay, so what should we do? The first thing where it would actually be helpful if you had somebody who could speak Chinese or who could who could bridge that and I've met some a lot of people not a lot but actually some officials or some um, researchers who've studied in China studied natural resources come back and now in government now doing research uh, still quite still few but I can see how they make a big difference in the interactions yeah. and I think that's just a starting point and the rest has to come with improvement of Africa's private sector governance in general yeah. uh, Sashi, so I think, these sound, oh. um, 
Well, Winslow, you have to go soon anyway, so why don't you ask your question? Um, the, these sound remarkably unsexy and <laughs> the sort of things that the international community might not appreciate. Hire people who can help Chinese uh, companies better integrate into their local environments and to help develop um, Af African governance and the um, and I'm and I'm wondering when you make that pitch to um, different sets of stakeholders, how do they take it? And mm. and mm. because I, I will say that I've seen a lot of a lot of um, groups in, in in NGO space or the international community, the thing they tend to focus on is Chinese government directives more than anything else. Mm. Um, and I'm wondering how how you deal with these sort of perceptions. Yeah, um, good question. Um, I think maybe the space I'm in is quite particular. I'm I'm not in the campaigning develop uh, NGO space. I'm in the constructive engagement, so research <laughs> together with you know Chinese stakeholders or government local governments would, uh, would want to, and they, they generally understand the need for this because they actually want to be constructively engaging. I think the, the question would, uh, if I talk, if I tell African stakeholders these issues is that where is the money to do that? You know, they have a lot of other priorities that they worry about. And where is the money to specifically hire somebody who can engage with Chinese? And then do we, do they have to do that for, for Brazilian? Do they have to do that for Indian or all the others or Lebanese, all of that? Um, so it, I think it becomes a resource issue. And if you want to take this one high, one level higher in that, is this something that the international development community should support or can support? Um, then, then I guess then we are looking at um, where where is the strongest pressure point to improve Chinese practices? Is it is this you know the engagement that I just described by building the capacity of local African stakeholders? Is that the most efficient way to go? Um, and I think that's where a lot of the uh, focus rests on Chinese government policy because people think, well, there are 50 plus African countries, there are loads of stakeholders in different sectors, we don't have the money or time or resources to do that, and then let's focus on the Chinese and nail it down. Uh, I guess in our paper we say that's counterproductive. I do see from my personal experience, at least in the research sector, that there are, I mean, especially spearheaded by, you know, Deborah Brotigam and others, there is a lot more focus on bringing Chinese and African researchers together. And in our project, um, also in IID project, China Africa Forest Governance Project, where we work with both stakeholders, Chinese and African government and civil society and researchers, we, we actively try to encourage. Although in the beginning we see that it's difficult, there's a big learning curve because there's different um, sense of you know, um, project management and different sense of how to do research, all of that. 
but it's very beneficial. And I think the role for IID type of organization is that you just have to facilitate and you have to support and believe that that bears fruit in the long term. And I strongly believe that. I strongly believe in that. But then, um, and I think actually overall the development sector, and this is not China Africa specific, but we do uh, focus on capacity building as a main part of our um, theory of, you know, how change happen so so yes there are so I, I just gave you a, from micro level to macro level there are different considerations there and um, positive perception yes let's do more engagement uh, we need the right resources but we need money for it and who can provide the money and and who can facilitate those are I think the detailed questions to be asked Great. And I love how you differentiated between campaigns and constructive development, because campaigns is mm -hmm. obviously not constructive. I'm 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 being facetious, but uh, yeah, the, your language yeah. choice I I found uh, amusing. But you probably yeah, need both just, to push for are, actions. If you consider, I think they play a different role. I I think they have a role. They play a very different role, and I'm not in that space, so I cannot speak to it. Sorry, Eating, I interrupted. Uh, no, um, excellent, um, all excellent insights. And I think what's really also uh, valuable from your paper is the recommendations that are coming out of the interviewees themselves, right? Um, so, and instead of um, recommendations coming from the researchers, I think this is quite valuable insight. So maybe um, as a last question, you can share with us some, what, what really stand out the most to you uh, the, the 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 demand, the, you know, the risks or wish wishes that um, the company themselves have pointed out. Yeah. So okay. So there are general things, uh, what tangible suggestions from the business community to the Chinese government, actually, uh, especially um, in terms of liaising more with the local governments on issues such as work visa or uh, crime that they think is targeting the Chinese community, um, and maybe address bribery issues, all of that. Um, then the reader or the listener can read more in the paper. But what really stood out to me, I'll mention one thing, is uh, land, land rights complexity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's some, it's a blind spot almost. That's not, at least as far as I know from the Chinese policy documents, I do not read that. I have not read that. And I think it's a blind spot also in terms of engagement from the development community, from international stakeholders. So it's understandable, I think, very much the complex or the problem that these Chinese businesses face in terms of land rights in Africa, because they come from China, where we know how land rights are administered, and it's very clear, black and white. Um, and then they go to Africa, where there is one official, doc, uh, you know, rights uh, system, which is basically what the government says, you know, how the rights are distributed, administered, and then there is the second and third layers. Uh, second layer could be the 
district or the regional governments consider this space to be used for different things. And actually, we see a lot in terms of natural resources, overlapping of mining and logging concessions. So, um, you know, that right away as a business, you'll be wondering, okay, the, the central government gave me this piece of land for mining, but then this government ministry is telling me that actually this is for logging. Uh, and then there's the even trickier part, which is the local communities, what they consider their land rights to be. And there's an entire, you know, many, many decades of research and engagement on issues about land tenure, land rights in Africa and in other developing countries so I'm not going to repeat yes, uh, what they do it. but it's just to say yeah it's just to say that any development practitioner trying to engage with Chinese companies needs to know that Chinese companies won't get that complexity right away and and they might never because it's just so different from their home reality uh, but if you want them to understand that complexity and want to tell them about the risks about you know investing just by listening to the local government telling them this piece of land belongs to you and you invest and afterwards the local community comes and protests and maybe a local NGO picks that up and then international media picks that up whose responsibility is that it, it, it's um, it's it's very very murky and complex and I think Chinese businesses would do much better by doing more due diligence and having higher awareness toward that complexity. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese government documents regulations so far, I think. Uh, and if somebody finds some specific clause talking about this, please let me know. But it doesn't highlight enough of that complexity. Which is understandable because if you, it's like saying it's a bit against the sovereignty principle because the local government is saying this is a local government piece of land and the Chinese government would find it difficult in their official guidelines or document to say, well, actually be careful what what the reality is on the ground. But perhaps in some of the trainings or perhaps in informal discussions, in, it could be something that to be highlighted. And similarly for the international development community, it's if instead of going, well, not instead of, but uh, beyond just going to court and publicizing mm-hmm. how Chinese companies violated land rights or other rights issues, could you, could we try to engage more constructively by giving them, you know, from investors' perspective, any investment risks associated with this, any manual in Chinese, um, talking to them about these issues, finding the key people that should be aware of this, uh, and maybe Chinese embassies on the ground could play that role a bit more and maybe local um, civil society on the ground could uh, pair up with Chinese embassies, you know, to do something similar. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very mm-hmm. much. Um, and uh, I, so could you um, tell, share a bit more with our audience and how would they be able to find more of your the excellent research that IED is churning out, uh, you know, what's maybe coming in the next, yeah. uh, in the coming year, and then how would people also find you on the internet? 
Sure. Uh, so I'm uh, available my uh, by email, my first name dot last name at iid.org, so xiaoxue.wen at iid.org, or if you want to read more, so our website is iid.org slash China, and that will take people to the overview of our work and some nice links there. And I'm also there on Twitter, xiaoxue.wen, I think. And then uh, maybe just coming up, uh, we're focused more on uh, some engagement. So our ongoing China Africa Forest Governance project, we keep bringing the key stakeholders in those spaces. And we're going to be hosting a big event in China in late October uh, with partners, including WWF. So that will be exciting. And then also on the research side, um, I think I, so I spend a lot of time in the field uh, in African countries, try to really understand what's going on. And as a part of that in the next year and two, I'm looking at how rural communities benefit from small-scale trade investment linked to Chinese players and um, how they do business and how, the, how what kind of changes that bring to their lives and really talking to the rural communities directly and gathering data. So that should be coming out as academic research pieces in the next year or so. Excellent. Thank you. And Lina, um, do you have any recommendations for our listeners today? And also, how would people find you on the social media? Uh, I do, actually. I have um, come across this um, um, piece published with the uh, conversation. Um, so the piece is by Ian Schoons. It talks about Chinese engagement in African agriculture. Uh, but yeah. actually, when you look at the piece itself, it has a link to a whole journal issue. Uh, that's the, Two of which uh, are written by, by IID researchers, actually. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. No, you're right. Actually, that, that's exactly where I was going. So the journal is World Development, and the issue is uh, open access, which is really important because a lot of times if your institution doesn't have access, then you don't have access to these articles. But the issue is uh, fully accessible, and it's free. Um, to uh, just uh, read some of the, you know, the, the research. A lot of it is on the ground also, very fieldwork-oriented type of research. And I've really enjoyed um, reading. I, I think I've read through three of the articles, not all of the issue. But um, it is something that I wanted to just highlight there. Maybe we can just have a link to it or something. Mm -hmm. but, um, <clears throat> but it's a really interesting issue um, in general. And... Um, um, as far as how people find me on the internet, I am on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at L Ben Abdallah, which is B E N A B D A L L A H, and I tweet um, China Africa things and and beyond. Thank you, Lena. Um, and to learn more about us and to get free knowledge from Cowries and Rice, you can um, go to our website cowriesrice.blogspot.com and www.cowriesrice.com. Personally, I tweet at Dao of the Pool, D-A-O-O-F-T-H-E-P-O-O-H. Um, so thank you uh, to the two of you uh, and Winslow. Um, and um, and Xiaoxin, we look forward to staying in touch and then maybe invite you back to the pot um, when your next event comes up. Oh, great, thank you. Thank you very much.